Please uh, take your Bibles and join with me in turning to Judges chapter 18. So we continue looking at the book of Judges tonight. Judges chapter 18. We'll begin reading there in verse 1. Our historian writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, In those days there was no king of Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. For until that day, an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. So the sons of Dan sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Eshtel, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said to them, Go, search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, And lodged there. When they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite, and they turned aside there and said to him, Who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? He said to them, Thus and so has Micah done to me, and he has hired me, and I have become his priest. They said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether our way on which we are going will be prosperous. The priest said to them, Go in peace. Your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were in it living in security. After the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure, for there was no ruler humiliating them for anything in the land, and they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. When they came back to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtel, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you sit still? Do not delay to go, to enter, to possess the land. When you enter, you will come to a secure people with a spacious land, for God has given it into your hand a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. Then, from the family of the Danites, from Zorah, from Eshtel, 600 men armed with weapons of war set out. They went up and camped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. Therefore they called that place Mahane-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. They passed from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who went to spy out the country of Laish said to their kinsmen, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, and household idols, and a graven image, and a molten image? Now therefore consider what you should do. They turned aside there and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah, and asked him of his welfare. The six hundred men armed with their weapons of war who were of the sons of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Now the five men who went to spy out the land went up and entered there and took the graven image and the ephod and the household idols and the molten image while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod and the household idols and the molten image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They said to him, Be silent. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. 
and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? The priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod and the household idols and the graven image and went among the people. Then they turned and departed, put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. When they had gone some distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house assembled and overtook the sons of Dan. They cried out to the sons of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you have, over t- uh, that you have assembled together? He said, You have taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and have gone away. And what do I have besides? So how can you say to me, what is the matter with you? The sons of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, or else fierce men will fall upon you, and you will lose your life and the lives of your household. So the sons of Dan went on their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned away and went back to his house. Then they took what Micah had made and the priests who had belonged to him and came to Laish, to a people secure and quiet, and struck them with the edge of the sword. And they burned their city with fire, and there was no one to deliver them because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. And it was in the valley, which is near Beth Rehob. And they rebuilt the city and lived in it. They called the name of the city Dan. After the name of Dan, their father, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses. He and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. Now this chapter that is before us this evening is obviously a continuation of the drama that was introduced to us last week in chapter 17. The main characters from chapter 17, Micah and this Levite, show up again here. But whereas in chapter 17 the drama chiefly revolved around these two men, here Micah and the Levite play pivotal roles in this migration and conquest of a portion of the tribe of Dan. In verse 1, again, we see this statement that shows up several times here in the closing chapters of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And then immediately afterwards, we're told that in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in, for until that day, an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. Now, we we have to understand the statement in a qualified way, I think. Matthew Poole put it well, I think, when he said that the lot had fallen to them before this time, but not the actual possession of their lot, because therein the Philistines and the Amorites had opposed them, not without success. And again, just to, to set this event on our Old Testament historical timeline, if you will, uh, the, the book of Judges uh, seems to run chronologically more or less from uh, as it describes the, the judges themselves. But in these last five chapters of the book, we have these two snapshots, one in chapters 17 and 18, second snapshot in chapters 19 through 21. And these snapshots actually seem to be uh, coming from early on in the period of the book of Judges and not 
not later in the period and certainly not following the, uh, the time of Samson. So we get to the end of the, the history of Samson in, in Judges chapter 16. And historically, this, this puts us up to the, the time of Eli the priest, most likely. But, but these two snapshots that we have, chapters 17 and 18, chapters 19 through 21, are, are kind of snapshots earlier in the history of this period. And what we, what we have here is this issue of the, of the Danites. It seems that they had been given an allotment among the, uh, the sons of Israel, but things hadn't worked out too well. Joshua chapter 19, verses 40 through 48, gives us uh, the account of that allotment that was given to the sons of Dan, and it includes some of the towns in which we see them dwelling uh, early on here in Judges 18. We see Zorah and Eshtaol mentioned there in Joshua 19. But Joshua 19, verse 47, goes on and gives us actually a thumbnail sketch of the events here of Judges 18. Joshua 19.47 reads, The territory of the sons of Dan proceeded beyond them, for the sons of Dan went up and fought with Leshem, in this text, Laish, and captured it. Then they struck with the edge of the sword and possessed it and settled in it, and they called Leshem Dan after the name of Dan their father. And so that verse there gives us a bit of a thumbnail sketch as to what happens here with respect to the Danites uh, going up to the north. And if you have that uninspired section in the back of your Bible known as the maps, it might be helpful to, to flip back there and see what is, what is going on there. And so if you have, one of, uh, if you have that section uh, there in the, the maps, uh, among some Bibles they'll have the, uh, the divisions of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And if you have one of those maps that lays out the territories allotted to the tribes, you, you'll see there's a a, a hook-shaped backwards J shape of land that was given to the tribe of Dan that was north of the territory of, of Judah and one side stretches out to uh, the Mediterranean there with, with Joppa and this territory, as we said, is north of Judah. It is west and south of the territory of Ephraim. And that was the, the portion that was allotted to the Danites in the days of Joshua. And then if you looked northward on, on your map, about due north of the Sea of Galilee, or sometimes called the Sea of Chinnereth, and then roughly east of Tyre. Tyre is going to be on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, roughly east of Tyre and north of the Sea of Galilee, you may see, uh, it might be marked on the map, this town of Dan. And so this was the place where these 600 men went and conquered some new territory. So you see their, their territory over there to the north of Judah, and then they, they go up way up to the north to conquer some extra land. And so we might, we might ask, why did these 600 men feel the need to send out five spies and then follow up and send up 600 men to go and conquer this territory? I think we find the answer to that in Judges chapter 1, verses 34 and 35. And there in Judges 1, we read this. The Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Herez, in Aijalon, and in Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. In other words, the, the Danites, like the rest of the tribes, failed in their conquest of the land. They did not trust and obey the Lord so as to take possession of the territory that was given to them, and therefore they were constrained to a smaller amount of land and wanting some, some elbow room and space to breathe. They send out these, 
five spies to spy out a place for them where they can settle. And as these five spies go out, they pass through the hill country of Ephraim, and they end up staying the night at or near this man Micah's house. And as it turns out, they hear a voice in the neighborhood that they have heard before. We're told there in verse 3 that they recognized the voice of the young man, this, this Levite. Somewhere in the past, these Danites and this Levite seem to, seem to have been acquainted. They seem to have known each other from somewhere before. This verb that's used there in verse 3 for recognized is the same verb that's used in 1 Samuel 26, 17 when we were told that Saul recognized David's voice. And uh, that's in one of those, uh, one of those cases where Saul, uh, David had spared Saul's life, and David's now in the distance calling back over to the camp, and Saul, Saul hears a voice he's heard before. That was David's voice. It seems like the same thing is going on here in, in Judges 18, that, that these five spies are there, and they, they hear this Levite, and they're like, wait a minute, we, we know this voice from somewhere. And so they strike up conversation with him, and they ask him what he is doing there. The Levite gives them a life update, told them about working as a priest for Micah. He's got a new gig now, and they in turn ask him to do some priestly work for them, to inquire of God about their mission that they're on, whether it be prosperous. And the priest gives that response in verse 6, go in peace. Uh, Your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. And the Danites go their way. They spy out the country. They find this peaceful place that looks good and undefended. And it looks like the kind of place they could go easily conquer and set up homesteads for themselves. And they come back with these glowing reports about their explorations. They urge their fellow Danites to get a move on so that we can move up north, lay claim to some new land. It'll be easy. And then these 600 armed Danites set out. And as verse 21 makes clear, this is not just a military expedition. They're packing their households with them as they go. Verse 21 tells us that they've got their little ones with them and their livestock. And so this is not just a, a precursory military edition, uh, expedition. It seems like they're, they're, bringing, they're bringing their families with them as they go. And so they're both moving and going out to conquer all at the same time. And then as the expedition kind of retraces the route of these five spies, they pass through the hill country of Ephraim. They come to Micah's house, and the five spies then imply this plan of action in verse 14. They say, do you know that there are in these houses an ephod and household idols and a graven image and a molten image? Now, therefore, consider what you should do. Or to put it more bluntly, they're planning on staging an armed robbery. And so they they talk to the Levite, and while he's standing there at the gate, the five men who had been the spies go inside, take the idols and the idolatrous paraphernalia. The heist has happened. And the priest asks what might be the obvious question. He says, what what are you doing? By this point, it's probably all too clear what they were doing. They were making an armed heist of these idols. And the Danites say, be silent, put your hand over your mouth, you come with us and be to us a father and a priest. And then, uh, here's the, uh, the careerist question, right? Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? And look what, look what the uh, Levite does there in verse 20. Then the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household idols and the graven image and went among the people. And this, he's, he's excited about it, right? And this seems to, to fit with what we were told about the Levite back in 17, back in chapter 17. This guy 
has a focus, it seems, that was all about the career, all about the earning of a shekel. If you look back to chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, we find that this Levite had set out from his home to find a a place to stay. He evidently needs a job to do. We don't know for sure, for sure, but some have, have speculated that since religion was at a low ebb in Israel at that time, that this man is a Levite is having trouble making a living. People are not paying their tithes the way they're supposed to, and the Levites, therefore, are not being supported the way that the law had commanded. And so this man, Micah, turns into a drifter, needs a job, and he goes about looking for a place to stay, and he comes to Micah's house. Micah offers him this job as a priest. The price is right. He gets a place to live, 10 pieces of silver and a suit of clothes and and his maintenance, and Micah thus had made him an offer that he couldn't refuse. And so from his perspective, he probably, probably thinks he's doing pretty well. It goes from unemployed to being a household chaplain, a, a priest to a family. Matthew Henry's comment was that the ministry is the best calling, but the worst trade in the world. This man was looking for a job, and he seems to have been the type that would sell his services to the highest bidder, or at least to the most alluring field of service. There's no true loyalty to God or to persons, for that matter, for this Levite. His heart is glad because he got the chance for an expanded ministry, right? He gets to minister now to a whole tribe, or at least a a clan of a tribe, instead of just this one man's household. And meanwhile, poor Micah had lost his idols, and so he and his neighbors go after the Danites, and we hear his pathetic words there in verse 24. You've taken away my gods which I have made, and the priest, and have gone away. What do I have besides? So how can you say now to me, what is the matter with you? This poor man had had lost everything that he held dear. The robbers came, they took his stuff, they took his priest, they took his idols, and he is a wreck. And he gets put into his place, told to be quiet, or else something worse will happen. These violent men will fall on you, your blood will be shed It'll be done. And then the final verses of the chapter tell us how the military expedition of the Danites was successful. They struck down this quiet and secure people. They renamed the town after their forefather. They set up this idol that had been stolen. Verse 31 tells us about the longevity of the idolatry that was set up there in Dan. We're told that Micah's graven image was there all of the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. Now, the house of God was in Shiloh from the days of Joshua until, it seems, up until the uh, the days of uh, the childhood of Samuel. And some would estimate this uh, time period to be 360 years long. This idolatry in uh, Dan in the far north would have been a little bit shorter than that time because obviously, uh, obviously this time is... Uh, maybe a generation or two after the days of of Joshua. But nevertheless, this was a long-lived idolatry going on up there in the north. But then, we shouldn't miss this, one of the biggest bombshells, I think, in these two chapters comes in verse 30. In in journalism, there's a, a practice that is sometimes called burying the lead. And what that means is that Particularly relevant information pertinent to a story is, for some reason, not recorded up front, but is, but is buried somewhere later in the story. At least traditional journalistic practice was that you try to get the important facts out there up front, the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why. You try to get that out up front early on in the article. But our author 
did not do that here. You can call it burying the lead, you can call it the verse 30 surprise, but this actually seems to be the author's intent to draw us along and tell us about this, uh, this anonymous man. Call him a Levite, call him a priest, call him a young man. And then, it's not until chapter 18, verse 30, that we get a name, and what is more important, we get a family. At long last, we learn the identity of this heretofore anonymous Levite. He is Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. Now, depending on the the translation that you are looking at, the, the text may either read Moses or Manasseh, and then the other name appearing in the textual note uh, there for verse 30. I think it's most likely that the reading or uh, the authorial intent was Moses. Now, whether this Jonathan is the, the literal grandson of Moses or perhaps a generation or two further down the line, I think is somewhat of an open question in as much as uh, son can be taken in the sense of descendant. But it seems, seems certainly plausible that he's the grandson or maybe the great-grandson, maybe the great-great-grandson of Moses. How's that, how's that for a bombshell late in the story? We've been reading about this guy, okay, he's, we, know he's, we know he's not doing good, and then bang, right there at the end, this is the grandson of Moses. This is, uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Flannery O'Connor, but if you're familiar with some of Flannery O'Connor's short stories, sometimes in the, the twists and turns of, of what she has to say, she'll, she'll drop something, it seems like it comes out of nowhere, right at the end of the story, and you, you finish the story and your jaw's like, wait, what just happened? I remember uh, reading this, uh, this one short story, and I didn't, I didn't bother to, to look up the title, but there... Uh, uh, there was this uh, there was this guy who was a Bible salesman, and uh, this Bible salesman uh, goes out to this this barn with this uh, with this young woman who had a who had a wooden leg, and he um, he he asked her if he could if he could see her wooden leg, and he just he just walks away with it, and run, runs away with it there at the end of the story, and you know it kind of kind of leaves your jaw hanging open. You're like, what in the world? What just happened there? Same thing here in verse thirty. We've got the grandson of Moses just falling into this idolatry, using images, a false priesthood, a very opportunistic. This is a serious blow to, to the reader. Moses was highly revered in Israel for his piety, and rightly so. We read the, uh, the postscript on his life, Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. There's no, no other prophet had arisen like Moses. And yet for all that piety and all that godliness, there's no guarantee as to what his descendants would be. The point is, I think, that the rot in Israel was so deep that even a grandson or perhaps one who was a couple generations down, even further than that, perhaps three or four removed from Moses, had sunk into this self-serving, idolatrous priesthood for an occupation, and not only him, he passes it down, right? This is the family legacy of this grandson of Moses. This line of idolatrous priests, we're told, runs all the way down to the captivity 
of the land. Now, it's possible that, uh, that that captivity refers to the time that the northern kingdom fell to the, uh, to the Assyrians at the end of uh, what we think of as the, the nation of Israel in, in the Old Testament. Uh, some would take this to be a reference to the time at which the ark was taken into captivity uh, there at the end of the, uh, the days of Levi. And if you look at Psalm 78, it's, uh, it refers to the, the ark being taken into captivity. And so some would, some would understand the, the captivity here being, being spoken of as, as that, uh, that time at which the ark was, was taken away by the Philistines. One way or the other, this is a, is a bad legacy. This is a shameful thing. And no doubt we shudder at the prospect of this happening. We want our children, if we have any, we want the children of our church collectively to walk in the ways of the Lord and to go on from strength to strength. But we can't live the lives of our children for them. No doubt we have to be diligent to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We have to pray for them, but they might grow up to do very wicked things, just like this man Jonathan did right here. Matthew Henry's comment was to say, And if indeed Moses had a grandson that was rakish, and was picked up as a fit tool to be made use of in the setting up of idolatry, it is not the only instance, would to God it were, of the unhappy degenerating of the posterity of great and good men. Children's children are not always the crown of old men. And this is the sad reality of things. True, it is not universal, It's not universal that godly people's children grow up to be ungodly, but it is far too frequent to be called rare. When J.C. Ryle was the Bishop of Liverpool in the latter part of the 19th century, one of his examining chaplains who essentially worked under him as a bishop was his son, Herbert Edward Ryle. And in 1888, J.C. Ryle dismissed his own son from his position as one of his examining chaplains because Herbert Ryle had embraced unsound views with regard to the Old Testament. He essentially rejected the the inspiration of the Old Testament. And as a Cambridge professor and later as as a bishop and dean in the Church of England himself, Herbert Ryle taught the direct opposite of what his father had in regard to the Old Testament. We must work and pray against such demise in godly families But we must never fall into the trap of supposing that the children and grandchildren of godly people will automatically be godly themselves. Christian families are a great blessing and a great means of grace. There's nothing automatic about it. Grace is not transferred in bloodlines. But the bigger point to behold here is really much the same with what we saw last week. This is a snapshot of a society that is completely falling apart. This is a snapshot of people with no king in the land. This is a snapshot when the people of God have turned their back on following him. They seek him in a way, so to speak, but they don't seek him according to his word. They blatantly disregard God's word in the seeking of him and in the worship of him, and they think that they do so with impunity. The Danites rob and steal gods which were no gods. And Jonathan jumps at the opportunity to spread false religion further by expanding his wicked priesthood so as to minister to a clan of the Danites. And Micah gets robbed of his false gods and his illegitimate priests, and he thinks that he has lost everything that was worthwhile in his life. This is what society looks like when people turn their backs on God. You have 
armed robbery, you have opportunism, you have people who lose what is actually worth nothing, and they think that they've lost everything. Take this as the cautionary tale that it is, and in doing so, recognize that the only way to fortify yourself against the evils described here is to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ and to be filled with the Spirit and to walk with the Spirit. We read in our opening time together from Galatians chapter 5, and we saw there how the Spirit and the flesh are set in contrast with one another. So we read in Galatians five sixteen and 17, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please." The way of the Danites, the way of Micah, the way of Jonathan are all the ways of the flesh. Paul goes into uh, some specificity about the the deeds of the flesh and says they are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How many of those things were were going on right here in Judges 18? The only way out is to be made new in Christ and then to walk by the Spirit day to day. And this is, in the words of Ephesians 4, 22 and 23, to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's the complete opposite of everything that we see here in Judges 17 and 18. So we should praise God that we have such a Savior who indeed renews us so that we are not condemned to living the life that we see here in Judges 17 and Judges 18. We have been given a Savior who delivers us from that, and we've been given a King who leads us and commands us And praise be to God for the gift of the Holy Spirit who continually makes us new and keeps us from falling. May God give us the grace to continue walking with him. May God continue to renew us and continue to strengthen us. Let's pray.